This podcast is brought to you by The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. Your host is editor Mike King, and this episode is kindly supported by Fordo, shipping products as easy as sending emails. In this episode of the Lodestar podcast, I'll be discussing short and long-term container markets in an exclusive interview with one of the world's leading shipping analysts, BIMCO's Peter Sand. Before Peter, I'll be joined by the Lodestar's guardian of grammar and common sense, Nick Savides. We'll examine the latest efforts of the Biden administration and the Federal Maritime Commission to tackle shipping costs. I'll also be asking Stiefel's Bruce Chan why he thinks structurally higher air cargo rates are here to stay. And we'll hear just what rising supply chain costs and delays look like for a US SME shipper during a guest appearance by the president of SUNY America, Kent Anderson. We've gone from a regular movement of about six to seven weeks from Japan to over four months on our worst shipments at the moment. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. I'm delighted to again be joined for this episode by the Lodestar's news editor, Nick Savides. How are you doing, Nick? I'm great, Mike. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Nick, later on, I'm talking to BIMCO's Peter Sand about the container shipping market. But briefly, what's going on with FBX rates at the moment? Is there any sign of heat coming off this market yet? doesn't look like it. The inventories are still low in the US. The congestion is just as bad globally as it's ever been, I think. And there's no sign of that really ramping down to anything that would approach the normal kind of levels pre-pandemic. So uh, I, I don't expect rates to come down. I don't think anybody does for the foreseeable future. You've been in touch with the Federal Maritime Commission recently. President Biden has now told the FMC to look more closely at liner shipping and the high costs facing US shippers. What happens next? Well, actually, it's already happened in the second week of July. The Department of Justice and the Federal Maritime Commission have signed a memorandum of understanding, and they're now looking to enforce the the regulations that are already in place more rigorously, I believe. What is the problem over there? Is it just those ocean spot freight rates, or is it other things like detention and demorage? Uh, So they'll be looking at all all charges, uh, all complaints, if you like, from any shippers. It'll be detention and demorage. It'll be antitrust issues. So they're looking at whether the lines or the alliances are colluding. Not just the shipping lines, though, also the railways, which effectively have a very narrow band of companies that operate on network in the US. And it's getting narrower. You know, there's consolidation happening, or at least attempted to, to occur in the US. So... uh, there'll be fewer and fewer companies to compete. Those higher costs are on the shipping side. Well, I'll talk to Peter Sand about this a bit later. But what's striking to me is that it's not just chaos at ports. Those bottlenecks are being driven inland, which is a great time to welcome Kent Anderson, who's the president of uh, SUNY America, to the Lodestar podcast today. Hello, Kent. Hey, good morning. Kent, we were talking about this off air, but can you explain to all of our listeners out there a bit about your company's business and how your pre-COVID logistics requirements were set up in terms of your usage of that that trans-Pacific supply chain that we're all focused on at the moment? We're a small importer primarily from Japan. So we're a wholly owned subsidiary of Suniseki, Japan. We're a less than 100 movements per year company. We bring 
40 foot, you know, general purpose containers in from Japan. We generally always use the same route. It's from Japan to Pusan, Pusan to LA, LA to Chicago, Chicago via truck to us. We really start observing the first delays in uh, the early part of this year as you know, they start in Pusan. We've had delays in Pusan of up to several weeks. We'd have a feeder ship that takes us from Japan to Pusan and uh, getting some capacity on the ship to get from Pusan to LA took a while. That's still taking a little while, but then the really bad delays started to show up in LA. So everybody's tracking at the worst point. I think there was over 30 ships anchored at the port of Los Angeles. Eventually that's worked itself through. So we're, I think it currently it's six or seven ships anchored off of Los Angeles at the moment with not too long of a delays. But then the, the next delay was, okay, getting it moved by rail. And then the next delay was, okay, now they've moved it all by rail. And we normally go into Global 4 up in Chicago, which is Union Pacific's intermodal area. And that has become so backed up that they are now offloading about 80 kilometers west of Chicago at a place called Global 3, which is kind of in the middle of the state of Illinois. And yeah, we've had multiple containers sitting there for a month now. It's only about an hour difference drive to us, so it would be great if we could put them on a truck and move them down to our facility from there. But we've been told by the shipping line, nope, it's got to go from Global 3 to Global 4, and then from Global 4 to go on a truck down to us. So I don't know what's driving their logic. We've asked them to just ship directly from Global 3 down to us via truck, which is only about an hour's drive difference. The feedback we're getting is there's no cherry picking. So that's where we're at. It's We've gone from a regular movement of about six to seven weeks from Japan to over four months on our worst shipments at the moment. What impact does that have on your business? Well, we're starting to eat into safety stocks, right? And we're running out of safety stocks. So what we're doing instead is some things are being flown in, but there's some things we can't fly. You know, we, we deliver machinery and we can't fly a machine in realistically. So uh, it's resulting just in delivery delays for our customers and a lot of gray hairs with me. You're talking about delays, but also the costs have increased as well. Yeah, I, I think we're probably doing a little better than your average uh, company on the costs for these, you know, sea containers and that we have very long-standing relationships with our shipping line. So we don't bounce around. So we're probably an ideal customer if you're a shipping line because we're pretty loyal. So uh, we have seen price increases, but it's they have not been so significant that it's causing us gigantic problems. Really, the huge problem for us is movement, like we like timeliness. Predictability is everything, right? Aside from all the delays, Ken, are there any other challenges that you found particularly frustrating as you've tried to resolve these supply chain difficulties? A lack of communication from the higher ups. You know, I think the railroads, the shipping lines need to go and do a very proactive communication mode so that smaller customers like us have a better understanding of how they're dealing with the situation. What sort of customer updates are you are you getting? What extra could someone do for you? Well, when you have a, a problem like this, so requirements within the system have exceeded the capacities within the system. So when you're dealing with something like that, the big question would be is how are you going to task organize in order to overcome this problem? And that's what I would be personally looking for from the shipping lines in Union Pacific. What efforts are you undertaking because you have extraordinary circumstances in order to get past them? Business as usual is not the answer. And I think if you look at the world supply chains, right, generally people set up their flows and then it's kind of fire and forget. Well, now we're more in a mode where something proactive is required. And I feel like people are struggling to come up with that proactive solution. 
There doesn't seem to be any extra capacity available in that system, whether you're looking at factories in Asia, if you're looking at the port in LA, whether you're looking at railroads or trucks, there's not enough drivers even. How are you planning for an extended period of higher costs and, and increased disruption? How will it impact your business? Are you looking at to try and reset your logistics system so you to avoid this in the future, perhaps? Yes. So definitely looking at, you know, the, the world is not static. The Panama Canal got expanded in 2016. If you were to visit the southern ports of the United States of America, Charleston, you know, Savannah, the East Coast ports, there's been a lot of investment there. So one of the things we want to look at is, you know, are we going into the right ports? So I, I definitely think we had some challenges with California working rules related to COVID. You take the combination of COVID, lack of workers at the port, maybe some union rules added plus California working rules. I think probably a challenging situation in California. So we'd like to look at possible other routes for the future. Can we come into Savannah, Charleston, and run with one of the Eastern railroads up to the Midwest until we skip the Chicagoland area? If you're ever driven around Chicago, it's an incredible amount of vehicles on the road. People's personal cars, trucks. I mean, Chicago is just, it's the, you know, it's where the, it's where the, all the railroads in the United States meet in Chicago. And when you go up there, you can just see it's an absolute logistical epicenter for the United States. Well, if we can come in on the East Coast, we might be able to avoid that entire bottleneck up there. So that's one of the things we want to look at in the future. So you're thinking about being more reliant on one of the canals. That would be, given the events of the past year, the last few months. Yes. Yeah. The choke points exist, right? No matter what you do, you got to choose <laughs> yeah. your poison, right? Ken, thank you very much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Thanks for having me. It is a great podcast. Nick, Kent was talking about shipment times there of six to seven weeks for a box from Asia to arrive pre-pandemic. And that's now taking up to four months with no visibility at all about when the box might arrive. It's not really sustainable, is it? Not at all. But it's, it's not just that. The shippers that I've spoken to is one called Alice that was in a story in the middle of July that, that uh, said she got charged detention demurrage charges even for export cargo from the US, this was, even though her containers had been delivered to the port on time, the ship had been delayed, so the, the cargo was delayed in the port, but there was nothing that she could do about that. And then suddenly she finds herself landed with nearly $3,000 worth of debt, including, actually, a payment for a debt collector for a detention and demurrage that she didn't accrue. Presumably this is something that the FMC will be looking at. I would think this is the sort of case that they would be looking at. The The carrier in, in question has said they'll look at it too. But another thing that the FMC might, be, might consider is that shippers are actually not really wanting to come forward because of the fear of uh, reprisals from the lines. They're already in a situation where they can't get uh, space on board ships. They don't want to put their head above the parapet and then get get no space at all what strikes me when we look at the u.s market and we've got these intermodal congestion we've got issues with railroad capacity we've we've covered the ports and what's going on the shipping side of things when does all of this end when we've got inventories to sale ratios in the u.s are still very low consumption levels are remaining quite high it seems logical that this spending will eventually slow but as sea intelligent pointed out recently 
we're now in black swan territory. There's not really any models available out there to help us predict when that demand boom will last until. I, I think that's a, a, a real problem that everybody is grappling with or trying to grapple with. For one thing, there is uh, low in inventories in the US. And another thing, the, the uh, state has been providing aid to those workers that haven't been able to work. But in America, what I've been told on a number of occasions is that American consumers are very different from European ones. Europeans tend to save, Americans want to spend. And uh, they have a lot of cash to burn in America and, and they're gonna keep doing it until it runs out. So who knows when that will be? We, we don't know for sure. As Kent was saying earlier, for many shippers who can't get their cargo in by sea at the moment, or where it's taking very, very long periods of time, air freight is becoming their only option for emergency supplies. And on that point, I'm delighted to say we're joined by Bruce Chan, Vice President Global Logistics at Stiefel. And if I might add, one of the world's leading air cargo experts. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Mike. Glad to be here. Thanks for coming on. Bruce, rates are currently between 60% and 120% higher than pre-COVID levels, depending on the trade lane. But we have seen prices come off in recent weeks, according to the Baltic Air Freight Index. With that as background, I'm particularly interested in two points you've made recently. Firstly, you're on record as saying you don't expect a return to normal, structurally lower rates anytime soon which you also link to growth in e-commerce and the commitment of forwarders to all-year air chartering. So I'm wondering, how does your view that sustained higher rates are here to stay marry up with your second point, which is that air freight rates are for now heavily coupled to passenger demand, epidemiology and port operations? I think you've got really two factors at play here, the supply side and the demand side. The supply side first, you know, of course, we had a massive exit of capacity from the marketplace with the onset of COVID. And while we've seen some return of passenger demand in domestic air travel and short haul air travel, it really hasn't returned to anywhere close to the same degree on the long haul wide body international flights, which is what, of course, makes up a large percentage of that transcontinental belly capacity that's so important for the freight markets. When we speak to our airlines analysts, when we talk to the companies, the shippers that we do our channel checks with, it seems like consensus is forming around a late 2023 or even 2024 normalization of global air capacity. So that's informing our view on supply uh, there. On the demand side, you pointed to one of the issues with port congestion, with broader supply chain congestion, and with really just the broader disruption that's going on in global supply chains right now. When we think about shippers that are trying to or struggling to normalize their inventory levels, when they're dealing with all of these episodic disruptions, they're really going to use uh, high service, high speed modes to try to make up some of the difference. And of course, that's where air freight comes in. And in some cases with high value goods, with critical process components, if slower modes and cheaper modes like ocean freight are backed up, they may have no alternative but to rely on air freight. So I think that's more of the cyclical demand piece. And then finally, as you pointed to on the structural side, we've got some secular trends that are going on right now, particularly with e-commerce that are changing the way that goods are being moved and consumed. We're seeing smaller 
um, inventory batch quantities get you know pulsed into distribution centers and fulfillment centers in order to meet this exploding e-commerce demand. And I think that's also fueling a lot of the demand side growth in air cargo that we're seeing as well. And you're seeing these high freight rates, they're going to carry on right through the traditional Q4 peak. So we're going to see increases from uh, having a little bit of softening recently. We're going to see another peak coming through Q4 maybe into next year. Yeah, that's our baseline assumption for now. Obviously, uh, it's a little bit precarious trying to predict uh, the way that you know anything is, is happening right now in the freight and supply chain markets. But I think what we're seeing now is your typical summer lull. But we anticipate that will accelerate again as we get into the back to school ordering season, because, you know, if you recall, we didn't have a back to school season in August of last year. So you have a lot of families, a lot of kids that are um, stocking up for the first time in you know, a couple years. So we anticipate a pretty healthy demand. And then that leads us into the fourth quarter uh, holiday peak season again, which by all accounts seems like it's going to be fairly healthy, although we're still pretty early in that process. So I think if we see this capacity tightness continue into another high demand phase, that could take us into the Lunar New Year of next year once again. One of the things we've seen this year, Bruce, in terms of capacity on the supply side of that equation is the introduction by carriers of passenger freighters or praters, as some people are calling them. These aircraft are a lot less efficient for freight compared to freighters and a lot more costly is it a case of this capacity is getting added when rates rise and then being taken out a bit when they drop? And is this adding volatility to pricing? I think it's adding some volatility to pricing. But as you pointed to, I think this is more of a reactionary issue than, than it is uh, one that's actually going to be driving rates forward. You saw at the peak of the pandemic lockdowns last year when rates were increasing by several multiples of, of their normal levels, that the P to F conversions were really coming into force. But I think where we are right now, if we're sort of sub 2X, 3X, carriers might be a little bit more reluctant to introduce these alternative capacity sources, just because the, the math doesn't work out quite as nicely. But I, I think this sort of episodic supply addition, and then your episodic demand shocks as well, are going to add to volatility for, for pricing because there is just less of an overall capacity shock absorber to soak up some of these issues that are happening right now in the marketplace. So I, I think it's adding, to answer your question, a little bit of volatility, but there are many other sources that I think we should be more concerned about. And Bruce, finally, later in this podcast, we'll be looking at how US demand over the last year has been a key driver of container shipping markets and global container trade growth. Are we also seeing an element of the US market weighing heavily on the air cargo market, as in are US shippers sucking in extra capacity because they're simply willing to pay a bit more to get their products in into the US on time when they need them to keep those supply chains open? Yeah, I, I think so. And when we look at the global GDP growth quarter by quarter, I think what we're seeing is faster growth in the US than in other parts of the world. Um, especially when you look at it on a two-year stack. So what's going on in 2021 versus 2019 or even 2018. So uh, that may have to do with a faster recovery and a faster vaccination rate in the U.S. than in other geographies. It may have a lot to do with the substantial government stimulus that came down earlier this year and, and last year as well. So I don't know if that normalizes at some point, but you know, current trends, I think, are pointing to faster growth right now in the U.S. than in other places. And 
I would expect that to draw capacity to the US as opposed to, again, some of the other regions of the world. Thanks for joining me, Bruce. My pleasure, Mike. Great to be here. And thanks to you, Nick Savides. Thank you. I'd like to introduce a man well known to many of you, the Chief Shipping Analyst of BIMCO and one of the world's foremost voices on container shipping. It's Peter Sand. Hello, Peter. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me today. Peter, it strikes me when I look at container shipping right now that we have two narratives which are necessarily interlinked. On the one hand, we have container lines and they have record profits. Q1 EBIT across the top 11 carriers was so high it was vaguely otherworldly, such was the D-link with any previous numbers that we've seen. And then on the other side, we have customers. We have scheduled reliability is running at less than 50%. Spot freight rates continue to increase on top of already record levels. One forwarder is predicting rates on, on the Asia-US East Coast trade of pushing $20,000 this month for a guaranteed spot. And even then, as we heard earlier on this podcast from one US manufacturer, many shippers currently have no visibility on when their cargo might arrive from Asia. It's potluck irrespective of what you pay. Is there anything in your analysis of this market as we hit peak season that makes you think we won't continue to get more of the same? Or is it possible that things could even get worse for shippers and possibly even more profitable for carriers? Well, as many of our members are on the carrier side, I think they are really in heaven right now. You mentioned the profitable market indeed, and focusing on what has just happened recently in, in the market, we just passed the mark going into the 1st of July, and, and that saw pretty steep increases from DRIs being pushed by carriers to the extent of $2,000 knock-up in, in terms of the spot rate from Paris to Europe, now reaching no less than $13,000 a day on average, that is. But more importantly, of course, when I look at freight rates, I tend to put some attention to the spot rates, of course, they do take a lot of headlines, but most emphasis I would put on the, uh, the long-term contract market. On Far East to Europe, we actually did see also uh, quite a knock-up in terms of the contract rates going from 3,800 per FEU to 4,800 per FEU. So that's plus $1,000. And if carriers are capable of, of, of signing a lot of deals at, at those elevated levels, I think they are not only preparing themselves for a sweet spot for the rest of the year, but this goes into next year as well. And and, and basically, as we also put a, a bit of a, a future scope on today's talk, Mike, it's fair to say that 2021 will be a record high for profits, but, but carriers are building to make 2022 as well as a, a good one. We'll come back to where we think rates are going and schedule reliability are going as we look forward. But if we can just rewind slightly, when you look back at the past year or maybe just over a year, are you looking at this market as being rather uniquely driven by the nature of demand during the pandemic? Or, or could lines and maybe their intermediary parties have managed things slightly differently in terms of the supply chain and capacity and coped with all of this in a better way? Two words, carriers are doing whatever they can to bring and add capacity, cargo carrying capacity into the market because of the money you're capable of making right now. But the other word would, of course, be that fiscal stimulus provided by Capitol Hill to the American consumers. In other words, the uh, COVID effect, you might call it the long positive COVID this time around, 
not related to uh, to the illness in any way, but the fact that we have seen a fiscal stimulus third only to that stimulus provided to the American economy that we saw in the immediate aftermath of World War One and Two. It is that spectacular, and obviously that also caused uh, a massive pressure on global supply chains. But I think we need to uh, to look even beyond the uh, the seaborne lack of the global supply chains, of course, because what we have seen have been a super busy manufacturing sector in the Far East and in China predominantly. They have really been capable of ramping up production at high pace and, and very fast following their uh, lockdown in the early days of, of 2020. So I think it's fair that we look beyond also the seaborne leg of things and, and look firstly, of course, to the terminals. They have really been working overtime and, and surely the big bottlenecks, I, uh, I would say, have been in the terminals, predominantly at the receiving end. So on Trans-Pacific, where we expect this to go on for the longest time due to the stimulus, but also due to uh, the backlog of containers being in place or in the wrong place, you might say, just waiting to, to get moving. I think that is an important thing to uh, to um, consider also when talking about reliability. I guess that was where you started being record low right now. And I think that reliability is, is unfortunately not only in the hands of, of carriers going forward. Uh, you need so much more also to work in uh, all the adjacent ends of the, the supply chain in order to, uh, to bring that reliability up. But having said that, I mean, record volumes are being moved right now. So I guess everyone in the global supply chains are doing whatever they can. So it's your view that there's not much anyone can really do right now to get schedules back on track. When we have congestion sucking capacity out of the system, there's no ships available more or less on the charter market. And when demand, as you were saying, particularly in the US, remains so high, do we need to wait for US consumer demand to, to falter? Yeah, I'm afraid that, uh, that it's not something that we wish for. The American consumers have been excellent at spending the money they have received quite rapidly. But there is still some uh, some pent-up demand and, and some money in the bank. And I think we see that indirectly if we look at some of the unemployment numbers also from the U.S. It's not as if the workforce uh, is at equal size uh, today, as uh, was the case a couple of one and a half years ago. Sorry about that. That's okay. <laughs> I'm dog sitting today, and I guess uh, Louis wanted to uh, to have a word or two. Hello, also. Louis. <laughs> Welcome to Lodestar Podcast. <laughs> yeah, the more the merrier, I guess. But uh, but so far, dog food is in, in 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 good supply, and that's a relatively reliant supplier that we make use of. That. So, so at the moment, then Louis would be one of the few consumers that has a reliable supply of all the things that they would like to consume. <laughs> Just coming back to how those schedules are being affected, or rather not how those schedules are being affected, but how the carriers are managing their capacity. They haven't got any other ships out there available at the moment, but we are seeing carriers moving capacity out of north, south and regional trades and onto the more lucrative Transpac and Asia-Europe lanes. Do you, or in fact, does Louis expect this to continue while a profit motivation remains? Hang on, I'll ask him. Uh, yeah, what he's trying to convey now is that uh, the, the tendency that we see for carriers to add more capacity to the most profitable trade lanes is a natural development, obviously. They need to make sure that the key clients are still getting the support from uh, from carriers that they can count on. But, uh, but I'm absolutely sure also global shippers uh, are painfully aware of the fact that the shippers 
are doing whatever they can in order to increase reliability, but there's only so much more you can uh, you can do to that. They are working from one state of emergency to the next. Most recently, of course, Yan Tian rings a bell to many of us. That was the, the most recent disruption on top of so many others. That was a good example of some key carriers letting their clients know more about the situation, letting them know that we omit calling uh, Yan Tian for a certain period of time on these routes, getting them inside into the also the super difficult challenge of managing a global network of, of container ships uh, and making everyone happy at, at the same time. So so getting back to, to north-south trades, I, I don't think we're seeing a, a, a large-scale disruption in terms of north and south uh, ships being deployed on Trans-Pacific, but surely uh, we are seeing something and we're also seeing smaller ships than, than, than usually. I think only uh, last week, a Panama ship-sized uh, trade lane was being set up from, from the Far East into the U.S. Uh, East Coast. So that's just one example. I was looking at their transatlantic trade, and I, I describe that as traditionally flaccid, but stable would be another word that you could use. Mm-hmm. But we've seen even there this year, the rates have been spiraling. Yeah, and I think that is the the interconnectivity of the whole uh, global supply networks. They start in one place, and, and then uh, they basically have knock-on effects to every other trade lane. Uh, I started pointing to the fact that we now see an average trade rate of 13,000 into to Europe. But if you look at the demand from Europe out of Far East, it's not impressive, to say the least. If we, we balance out the COVID year and go back to a two-year that we have spent now uh, since 2019, we're looking at only uh, demand growth into Europe from the Far East around 3%. And that itself, of course, does not require $13,000 per FEU. But obviously, that is the knock-on effect from the COVID, the dislocation of, of equipment. We, we started talking about that more than a year ago. But it's just been one of those developing stories that have uh, stayed around. And, and, and basically, the main cargo out of the West Coast to the U.S. right now is air because of the fact that they need to reposition those empties ASAP in order to get those boxes back to the Far East. And obviously the transatlantic, which used to be yeah, very stable and, and slightly boring. I mean, not many people uh, tend to, to talk about the, the, the transatlantic trade up until now, when, uh, when all of a sudden uh, freight rates are also increasing on that one. Just looking at that supply-demand balance, obviously everything's skewed at the moment. But it feels like that might continue for quite some time. Will, at some point, new building deliveries start to help on the supply side in terms of increasing capacity? You know, How do things look for 2021? And if it's not going to make any difference this year, when will it make a difference? What would make a real difference to, uh, to, uh, to adding capacity would be something as simple as putting higher speed on those trade lanes. Uh, but obviously, that would only increase the cargo carrying capacity at sea. And if we still got uh, clocked up terminals at the receiving end of, of the trade lanes, we would not be in a better place. So, uh, so I guess that is also one of the reasons why carriers have basically maintained the same number of ships in the same uh, rotations. But obviously, if we uh, talk about nominal capacity, right now we're approximately 60% into uh, to what we expect to be delivered uh, for this year alone. For the full year, we will we will have a number around 900,000 TUs being delivered. That's a little bit more than 3% on top of what was around last year. For 2021, it looks even better, uh, slightly below uh, that, uh, that 3% mark. But then we are getting into uh, 2023 and where those 
ships being ordered rapidly now. Uh, we having we're having a 14 year high, I think, in terms of uh, container ship orders being placed at forest and shipyards, and they will be delivered most of them right now in 2023, uh, and in 2024. So that looks like a, a fleet growth uh, at that point in time around five uh, percent. So that will at least add capacity to 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 some point. But I think in many ways. It's not as if the container shipping sector have been lacking capacity up until now. Uh, so I know it will take time to unwind this uh, this very special uh, moment that we face right now. And, and it takes super long time to unwind something that's clocked up on a global scale like this. But I think carriers are, are, are bracing themselves for the impact of, of, of the many orders that they see right now coming in 2023 and enjoying a couple of more years with the, with low nominal uh, inflow of, of capacity. You mentioned earlier about the important role of U.S. consumer demand and also the ability of Chinese manufacturers to meet that demand, essentially. Is that the key relationship in this whole pandemic year of container shipping? Is China being the big winner and is U.S. consumer demand being the big driver? Is that a fair reflection of how you view it? Very much so. And and just to, to add a few more words to it, because at a crunch time like this, obviously, uh, so many people, uh, especially in, on the import and retailer side, talk about making those supply chains more resilient as they seem to find themselves failed by the uh, just-in-time shipments that doesn't arrive. So will the global shipping networks look different once the dust settles from uh, from this uh, this crunch. I doubt it, uh, despite the fact that so much say mental brain power is put into uh, to uh, thinking: Could we do this differently? Could we reshore? Could we nearshore some of the manufacturing? Could we perhaps set up our next production facility in in Vietnam instead of uh, instead of China? I think what we have seen in the past year has been China really flexing its muscles. They are the best at producing these containerized goods and their supply chains are just set up even to to service a a, a demand surge like we've seen here from, from the American consumers. It is not the Chinese ports that have seen the issues if we look beyond uh, Yanchan. It is uh, the receiving ports at the uh, the opposite side of uh, the Pacific that have have seen the, the crunch. So I think there is uh, there is there will always be a lot of debate about uh, making more resilient uh, supply chains, but but there are no cost-free options here. And I guess uh, this moment of, uh, of time is, is also pointing to the fact that, that the Chinese are, are doing a stellar job in this. They are also feeling the pressure from higher prices, basically. And that's a, that's a different discussion, I guess, beyond the scope of, of our talk here today. I think we could explore that slightly. I think your reference there was to the commodity super cycle where we've got higher prices for almost all of those imports going into China. So the, whether it's the, the MEC coal, the, the steam coal, the iron ore, the grains, the soybean, everything that's going into China, all of those costs, including bulk shipping costs, have all been increasing. Do you think that eventually plays through into our final consumer costs? Is that what you were saying? The short reply to that is yes. You mentioned the commodity super cycle. Uh, I think we are talking about commodity price super cycle because it's not necessarily demand which is super strong. It is an abundance of liquidity that have nowhere to go, but finding its ways into uh, to buying iron ore futures and stuff like that. 
but in the, in in the real world, what we see also in terms of uh, goods being exported out of uh, China and, and bringing us back to the container shipping market, they are also facing higher production costs. Steel is uh, is is up by a huge margin from what the steel cost only uh, say half a year ago, and even though more than half of the world's steel is produced in China. Higher steel prices in China also impact, of course, the production cost of these things that, that leave uh, the manufacturing hubs. So, uh, so in the end, uh, it might actually be that the money that uh, has been poured into the bathtub in abundance, making that bathtub flowing over, means that inflation have, have shown its uh, its ugly face in, in, in many different places. Knock on words, the U.S. Fed is still confident that, uh, that this is a, only a temporary phenomenon. I have been uh, outspoken about that also being a temporary uh, phenomenon up until recently, but it's puzzling now that we see this uh, steady high level of, of freight rates, which at some point in time, obviously, as well, as that cheap as seaborne uh, transportation is, at some point in time, needs to be passed on to the end consumer. And I guess that could be an early omen also of uh, the cost increases that we're also likely to face once a, a full decarbonization of not only the seaborne supply chain, but the global supply chain is likely also to hike prices for the end consumers. I was looking at some PMI data actually yesterday, and that was indicating that we're already seeing some rising input costs feeding through into final pricing. Mm. Just going back to the demand element that we've discussed and how that's changed over the course of the pandemic, the way that we've been spending so much on products as opposed to services. I was lucky to catch some horse racing recently and it it was busy. Maybe this is the start of that switch to services rather than products. And I put a few failed bets on. If you were placing a bet, when would you say shippers could expect a major softening of rates Or should shippers be planning around a container shipping market that's consolidated and in which the major players are more actively acting in their own interests and avoiding the rates wars of the past to keep rates at elevated levels? I think uh, shippers uh, should brace themselves still for uh, the peak season that is extended this year. Uh, it's, It's already here, to be honest, as many shippers have pushed forward and front-loaded cargoes, if possible, at all, because uh, you cannot miss out on the biggest season of them all, the, the, the Christmas season. And it may seem like a long time till till Christmas uh, with 30 degrees Celsius outside my door here, but that's basically what we're talking about right now. So uh, I don't do much betting. Uh, I only do uh, betting on horses, basically, when being in good, uh, good shipping company in Happy Valley uh, in Hong Kong. That's really a spectacular show, but I, I, I fail to win on horses. Uh, but my thinking around the container shipping market is that, that we are very close to, to, to peak conditions here. We have seen volumes being moved at, at record pace. The, the U.S. Retail Association, I think, expect record volumes to arrive in July. Uh, and we have already seen limited knock-up on freight rates also in, in early July. So uh, so our expectations are that high freight rates, predominantly the spot market, will stick around throughout the peak season. Then we will start to see some kind of softening in the rates as we approach the Chinese Lunar New Year. And it's a long way from now, but, but still... Any season obviously uh, brings around also what any season uh, does. A bit of higher freight rates, the shippers also front load ahead of that. But as I mentioned earlier here, we could see this 
to unwind over the coming 12 months. It may seem as if a long way ahead. Can't they just uh, get rid of those boxes and uh, make them move ASAP? Do they have to spend 365 days doing that? Yes, is the short reply to that, because they never catch a break. Some of those ports need uh, basically no boxes arriving for two months in order just to clear the backlogs. But I think at the same time, we realize that a record high number of boxes are being moved. So everyone around the supply chain is doing whatever they can. But right now, I guess they're coming short of, uh, of expectations. And, and that's flowing over into to high freight rates, which which will stick around throughout the, the peak season and, and then only start to, to soften perhaps as we move towards the end of the year. You covered prices there. So on reliability, your, your point seems to be that maybe there's a break first quarter of next year for Chinese Lunar New Year. That might give people a, a chance to try and reset, although we did say that this year also. Really, we're looking at least into maybe the second quarter of next year before we might get that return to something that looks more normal in terms of reliability? Yeah, that is what, what I try to point to. I could see also uh, just a bit, a little bit of work uh, being done already, perhaps in, in the fourth quarter of this year, if it plays out basically along those lines that, that you suggest here, that the people start spending money, not perhaps only on horse race betting, but also on traveling, at least domestically, spending money on something else than goods. That will give carriers and, and the whole supply chain a chance to uh, clear out some of the backlogs and try to work with those issues with unreliability um, that, that have caused also, I guess, many issues in that infamous love and hate relationship between liners and, and, and shippers. And obviously, I can fully understand those shippers that, that are scratching their heads and, and complaining about poor reliability and very high prices, but the carriers have no no uh, choices but to do that uh, right now. Um, at some point in time, I guess it will be payback for the shippers, but we can also look back at the, the previous decades where it was all the other way around, where shippers uh, punished the liners every day for having added too much capacity too early in, in into the market, so they were getting uh, dead cheap freight rates. But uh, Q4, potentially the first light at the end of the tunnel for some kind of normalization and then really pace fingers crossed when we reach uh, the second quarter next year peter sand thanks for joining me on the lodestar podcast my pleasure mike thanks for having me great podcast i'd like to thank our sponsor forto for supporting this episode an additional shout to the baltic exchange for giving us exclusive access to their fantastic range of regulated indices and a big thanks also to my editing team tom matthews and karen ball thanks for listening everyone we'll be back soon